today's lesson, we're back to Paul's anthropological terms. And I'll be candid. I'm ready to end this part of Paul's theology, but I can't yet. We've still, I'm trying to figure out ways to mesh it all together. But I've been building this up to an end result. And the end result I've got is going to cause some of you to recoil in horror. And I'm looking at someone right now who I love dearly. But where I wind up with this is, it's very hard biblically to take Paul or the Bible all together and parse through these terms and come up with an anatomical system of man. Like we might if we were to take anatomy at a college or university or medical school. We could go take anatomy and we would know the knee bones connected to the thigh bone. The thigh bones connected to the hip bone. We could sing through all the bones and how they're connected. And we'd never confuse the knee bone for the thigh bone because we know they're different. With, with, the, anthrop- with the terms of body, soul, spirit, mind, flesh, uh, 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 inner man, outer man... It just doesn't always fit into nice little packages. Because I think the thrust of Scripture is not so much driving at defining who we are in an anatomy way. Scripture defines who we are relationally. The thrust of Scripture is not who we are in terms of how we're anatomically put together. Because those words do have certain confusions and and, and they don't all fit smoothly together in the way they're used throughout Scripture. What Scripture is driving at is who we are. The the, the psalm, and, and I'm now jumping ahead two weeks. This will be the introduction to my lesson in two weeks. But the psalm, Oh, what is man that thou art mindful of him? You created him a little lower than all the angels and crowned him with glory to rule over all creation. You know, what is man? What, what, the Bible doesn't define man so much in terms of how we're made together and the different parts. What the Bible does is define man in terms of the relationship first and foremost with God. There's not a human being that can exist on earth without having some relationship with God. Oh, some don't admit it. They're ignoring God. But that's a relationship. It's a relationship of ignorance. (laughs) Where the word comes from. Everyone must exist in relationship to God. Everyone must exist in relationship to each other. Now that doesn't mean these words don't bear fruit. And that doesn't mean it's not profitable to study them. It is. But it's not always in nice easy categories. Now having said that. I have my undergraduate degree as most of you know is in biblical languages. It's in Hebrew and Greek. I have a great love for word studies. And that's the part of this lesson I kind of like. These lessons combine two things for me. They combine my... Love of the Lord with my love of word studies and history. So I guess that's three things. I can't count. Today we're going to start looking at the word spirit. And we're going to do it from a historical perspective. So we're going to start with the word spirit we have today. 
and we're going to kind of walk back to Paul's terms. So you, let's open the history books together and let's start with cartoons. Have you ever compared cartoons historically? Have you ever compared today's cartoons to the cartoons we had when I was growing up? Okay, I'm not that big a fan of cartoons now. I, I just, they don't, I'm sorry. Um, roly poly Oli does not do it for me. And I can go the rest of my life without seeing Dora the Explorer again. And you might be saying, well, those are the little kid cartoons. I don't care that much for Kim Possible and Jimmy Neutron just doesn't float my boat either. There are those just those and my kids will watch my kids are past Roly Poly Oli and Dora the Explorer and probably past the others as well. But occasionally you'll see them glimpsing at them. And I just want to tell my kids, look, if you want to see good cartoons, watch Bugs Bunny. Oh, yeah. Watch the Texas Tech, I mean, uh, Yosemite Sam. If you want to see good cartoons. Now, there are some that I'll still watch today. You know, Phineas and Ferb is actually kind of funny if you watch it. And I've got to be real careful, as do you if you're in my generation, because we had some pretty shabby cartoons as well. In fact, we had some that were just horrible. Do you remember? Casper, the friendly ghost, the friendliest ghost you know. No grown-ups might look at him with... Hey, Casper has never been a good cartoon. The concept was fleshed out in a movie in 1995... The concept was given birth in a movie in 1995 called Casper. And we find out that there's this little kid who's skiing and stays out in the snow too long, catches pneumonia and dies. Which, by the way, is an incredible pun because pneumonia um, comes from the Greek word pneuma, which means spirit. So the ghost died of a spiritual disease. Um... Casper, the friendly ghost in the movie, though, he comes back. And, and, and ghost is something that we think of as some ethereal. You, you can watch Ghost Hunters. And, you know, we remember the movie Ghost Busters. And it's the idea that there are these little uh, non-physical, immaterial uh, beings and essences that are somehow floating along in some plasma state or something depending on whose uh, brand of, of ghostery you are buying. Um, and, and it's really messed up a word uh, uh, for us and a concept. But we're going to start our word study there because we have this word in America, ghost. It's a word that is in our English language. The word did not start in England. England had its own word. Its word in Old English was ghost. Oh, that's a ghost. Um, you know, ghost, I guess, with a British old accent. Ghast was the Old English word, and it came from the Old German geist. Geist was the Old German, and, and in fact, I think even now the German word for, for it is close. That's right, poltergeist we get from that. That's got the vestige of the German word geist in it. Uh, uh, so that's the word for ghost. But if we go back and we look at what the word was in its Old English and in it, even in its Middle English, 
it meant breath. And it makes sense. Who's going to be my, my sample person? Come on, Regina. School has started. Regina is a principal. Regina, step up here, please. Good job. Okay. Are you alive? Are you breathing? Yes. If we, if we put some, something down and it were cold enough where we could see her breath, would we see your breath? Yes. Okay, thank you. That's it. <laughs> yeah, give her a hand. Now, if she quit breathing and she had no more breath, she would not have been standing here. She'd have been flat on the ground and had no breath at all, she would be dead, wouldn't she? She would have given up the ghost. She would have breathed no more. Because you see, before people had great medical understanding and the science understanding we have today that we all grow up with, that changes the way we think about things from the way people historically did, they thought that breath was necessary to life, you ain't breathing, you ain't living. That breath, that ghost, that geist, when the breath ceases, you have given up the ghost. Nobody ever could see breath absent uh, the right weather, perhaps. But you knew it was there, you could feel it. I may not be able to see my breath, but I can certainly feel it on my hand. And when, and, and so what do you call that? Well, people called it breath, but they called it ghost. Ghost. And so you give up the ghost. It was your breath. It's your spirit. What some would call spirit. Soul is another word that's been used for it. But what it really is, is it's a, it was a label for that essence of life, that when it's gone, there is no more life. Does that make sense? That's where our word comes from. Now, if we go back into um, the time when Middle English was spoken, let's go back to England. Let's go back to England. Whoops, that red circle should not be there yet. It's giving you a sneak peek. Let's go back to England in the 13th and the 14th centuries. This is in the 1200s and 1300s. In the 1200s and 1300s, there were three principal languages spoken in England. One language that the peasants, the ordinary people spoke, is what we now call Middle English. Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, written in Middle English. Okay? That is a language that came from Norway and the Norse. It came from Germany and the Germans. It is a, a language of, of Germanic origin. If you're a linguistic scholar. A Germanic language. Middle English. Similar to what we have today. But that was spoken by the peasants. The aristocracy. Since the Norman invasion of 1046. The aristocracy spoke French. It's also called Anglo-Norman. But it was basically a French dialect that it had a little bit of Middle English mixed in. But the, 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 the ruling class, they would have spoken French in the 12 and 1300s in England. 
Then there was one other language spoken. Anybody care to guess? Latin. Because the church spoke Latin. The priests read Latin. The services were in Latin. And scholars studied in Latin. And so those are the three principal languages. Now there were scriptures in Latin. Since Jerome had translated them in the 400s. And by the 13th to 14th century, there really wasn't much of a problem with putting scriptures into French. But if you remember your church history, you remember that there were wonderful men who gave their lives to try and get the scriptures into English. Wycliffe would have given his life, but he died before they could kill him. But Tyndale died, burned at the stake because he was translating scriptures into English. Now, why was that a problem? There are a number of reasons, but the, one of the principal reasons that you can read when you read through all the teachings against translating them into English was that primitive English, what we now call Middle English, the language of the peasants was too primitive to properly express biblical truth. So it was blasphemous to God to try and reduce what God in His holy word had said into such a common vernacular language that did not have adequate vocabulary, adequate structure, and adequate beauty to truly reflect what God had delivered in His word. Now that was the argument. You can see how that might have some appeal. I say the argument. That was one of the arguments. But Wycliffe and Tyndale worked hard to take scripture and to translate it into the common everyday vernacular. And at this point in time, we're moving from Middle English into uh, almost early modern English. Not quite. Most folks associate that with King James in 1611. But you've got this last vestige of Middle English. And they're translating the scriptures into it. So let's look at them. I want to take a copy of Matthew or the verse from Matthew 3.11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's from our English Standard Version today. And I want to show you what that looked like in the Bibles that these two gentlemen uh, are credited with translating. First of all, here's an actual page from a print out of the Wycliffe Bible. I've underlined and put in red the passage, He shall baptize you in the Holy Ghost and fear. Okay? So, He shall baptize you in the Holy Ghost and fear, according to Wycliffe in 1395. The Holy Ghost. That's how he translated spirit. Because to him, Ghost was the breath the essence of life. Okay? By the time we get to Tyndale, he has, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He might have been from Lubbock. <laughs> I haven't found it in the history books, but the way he wrote fire, it sounds like he could have come from West Texas. It's just a possibility. Um... So, we've got, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost, no H, and with fire. 
Now, by 1611, King James has an authorized version that is authorized by the King of England, so it's acceptable and legitimate. And those translators didn't start from scratch. They mooched off of Wycliffe and Tyndale without putting in the foreword, thank you for dying on the you know, stake so that we could have this. Um, but uh, we can look at pages out of the original King James Version. And if we take a page that has the Matthew 3 chapter, it's... The verse is actually at the bottom of the left column and up at the top of the right, so I have to pull it out twice. But it says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose, now you may be saying that says hoof. Now back then, if the S was in the middle of a word, it was written in a way that to us looks like an F. Whose Again, shoes, see, I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so that gives us the King James. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, that's the way those Bible translators were translating Paul, uh, the biblical New Testament Greek word for spirit that we translate today, spirit. They were translating it in those passages where it had the word holy with it as the German word, ghost. The German word. But they flip-flopped every other time the word is used. Every other time they'd use the French word to translate it. So we can take another passage that we know, Romans 8, 2. Remember Romans 8 starts, I can never do verse 2, I have to start with verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, this is verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit, same word in the Greek. But when it doesn't have holy with it, they jump the German and they jump to French. So, Wycliffe, Romans 8, 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesu hath delivered me from the law of sinny and death. That law of sinny is really tough. Then we can jump and we can see it from Tyndale, For the law of the spirit that bringeth life, Thorough Jesus Christ, that should be through, but that's the way they spelled it, I guess, or said it, hath delivered me from the law of sinny and death. He may not have been from Lubbock after all. We spell better. Then we get to King James. King James does the same thing, follows it. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. And so what do we see? We see the word ghost being used from the Germanic, the Old English word, what the peasants spoke in Middle English. That word for essence of life, for breath, is being used when it's referencing the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. But if it's just spirit, they go to the aristocracy of France to get spirit, which comes from the French word esprit which is from the Latin word, which the church was already familiar with, spiritus. comes from the Latin verb spirare, which means uh, to breathe. Okay. So that's where they go for this. Now, none of that really helps us because Paul's not in, 
in uh, England, Germany, France. Heavens, he spent time in Rome, but at the time he was there, the church wasn't a Latin church. He's over there writing in Greek. So now that we've walked through history back to Paul, let's plug in Brother Paul. Brother Paul has this to say. Uses a word, pneuma. See, that's where we get pneumonia from. Which is ammonia of the pneuma. Or breathing. It's a lung disorder, disease, uh, sickness, illness, whatever it's called. It's, it's of the pneuma. It's of the lungs. Breath, pneumatic tools are tools that run on compressed breath, air. Okay. We still use the word those ways. So pneuma in the Greek is the word and it meant breath. But, but more than just meaning breath, when it's used to people, what it, the, the overarching meaning of it is that essence of life. You take it away and there's no life left. It's the essence of what is causing a person to be. Does that make sense? Okay, so with that, when you think of the Holy Ghost, or when you think of the Spirit, and we read about the Spirit, please do not think of Casper. Don't think of the Spirit being some immaterial entity by itself. The Spirit is part and parcel of the person. It's part of who a, a human being is. It's the essence of life, the life force, the life presence, the, the reality. And, and, and the, in Paul's day, they would not have thought of the Spirit as being something separate and apart from the person itself. Now, in preparation for this class, I'll bet you, literally, I've gone through 25 plus books that have been written on this. Literally. And it's so fun to read them, and it's so frustrating at the same time, because they all want to take a word like this and fit it into a beautiful system. And the one who did the best job, I'll credit the Baptist, a guy named David Stacy. Reverend W. David Stacy wrote The Pauline View of Man. And he said, I'm going to take the word spirit as Paul uses it. And it falls into six different categories. And, and he tried to wedge it. Wait, I was showing my bias. He tried to understand spirit within those six categories. We're going to use those categories because they're useful to us to put into our brain how he's thinking, how Paul's thinking. And to kind of sort through some of these passages. But I'm not sold on the six being right. Does that make sense? I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying it's man's creation, not Paul. Paul didn't say, hey, there are six ways I'm using the word spirit. If Paul had said that, I'd say, hey, there are six ways Paul's using the word spirit. But Paul didn't say that. Stacy did. Never met him. Probably a nice guy. Certainly a great scholar. I'm very impressed with his work. But it's a tool for us. It's not gospel truth. Does that make sense? So don't go to the bank on it. Use it in your banking, I guess is what I'm saying. Here are the six categories of usage. The first, Paul uses the word spirit 
when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And when he talks about the Holy Spirit, he does it in a number of different ways, or the, the Holy Ghost. Let's look, for example, at Romans 5.5. 5. And as we do this, you think about the Spirit being the essence of life. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's some essence of God's life that's holy. As Pastor Fleming said, that word holy means set apart. Hagios. It means it's, it's set apart. It's not common. So God's life, which is unlike anybody else's essence of life, God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit has been given to us. That's profound. That some of the essence of God's life has been given to the believer. An essence. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got an essence, a presence of God. A presence of God in your life that is set apart from any living presence there is. There is no spirit like God's spirit. There is no presence and essence of life like his. Paul doesn't call it only a Holy Spirit, though. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, this is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, we read, Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Who, who, nobody, I don't care if you're Kreskin, you don't know my thoughts like I do. Okay? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except that same essence of God, the Spirit of God. No one else does. So, call, Paul calls the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, what else does he call it? In Romans 8, 9, he says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God, again, the Spirit of God, dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, all the same thing because God is one. Three persons, but one. And so the essence of God the Father would be no different than the essence of God the Son. That essence, its own person in the sense that we, not that we use person so much today, but in the historical sense, I can't do more than refer you back to the lessons we had on that. They're on the internet. But to understand in that sense, there are, Paul can say, this Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ, all the same. Make sense? So one way Paul uses the word Holy Spirit, the word Spirit, is to talk about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. There's a second way Paul uses it. And this second way is as a, a divine influence in the believer. A divine influence. In other words, God's, it's a natural progression 
do it this way. If we have God, there we go. We have God and God's Spirit. Then for the believer, God's Spirit comes into a believer. And when God's Spirit comes into a believer, there is an influence. God's Spirit influences the believer. God's Spirit doesn't merely come into a believer and sit dormant. When I said if you're a believer, you've got the essence of God in you, it does not mean you've got the essence of God in you sitting there doing nothing. God comes into you and has an effect. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we see this. Starting with verse 4, Paul says... There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, pneuma. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, the same God, who empowers them all in everyone. To each, that means to everyone, every believer, is given the manifestation of the pneuma for the common good. To one is given through the pneuma the utterance of wisdom. To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same pneuma. It's not different essence of God. It's the same essence, but the same essence can come into different people and and give them different gifts and, and, and it expresses itself in different ways, always to the good of the church. To another, faith. By the same pneuma. To another gifts of healing. By one pneuma. To another the workings of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between the essences. To another various kinds of tongues. All of these. And another interpretation. All of these empowered by one and the same pneuma. Who apportions to each one. Sorry. (laughs) Who apportions to each one. Individually. As he wills. So, we can see from Paul. Not only is Paul using the word spirit to talk about God, but he's talking about the way God works in the believer. All right, there's a, whoops, a third way. Actually, there's three, four, and five, depending upon how we paginate. <laughs> Let's stop with the third way, though. There is a special way Paul uses the word spirit because in a special sense, the essence within a human is different. A spirit, a a, a born-again spirit exists in a born-again believer. Consider in this sense Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15, Paul says the following. You did not receive the pneuma the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's not the essence of of what's in you. Your essence as a person, the essence that you received that was given to you was not one of slavery. You received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You got an essence from God as a believer that is different than the essence you had as a human being. Your essence is now in stereo. 
You've got the essence of God in you alongside your human essence. And, and that's why he, Paul continues. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, Himself bears witness with our essence that we're children of God. So for the born-again believer, there is this new spirit that's put within us. It's an essence that, of adoption. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 4.13, an essence of faith. He says, therefore, since we have the same essence, spirit, the spiritu, pneuma, the same spirit of faith, according to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe, so we also speak. You've, it's, it's the spirit that's given to a believer. Paul will call it a spirit of adoption. He'll call it a spirit of faith. But it's God's spirit working with man's spirit. The essence of both is present in, in, in a believer. Which takes us to the, the next item. Item number four. There is a personal essence, a natural spirit in everybody. Every human being's got that essence of life if they're alive. And Paul recognizes that. In fact, the problem is living out of our Christian spirit, the, the essence, the influence, what's been given to us that is born again within us, as opposed to uh, uh, what we came into this world with. Look at what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, you know, our essence is not a pure essence. God's essence, which he puts in us, is pure. And that's, that's, but everyone's got an essence. If you're alive. Now, the, the, the next category that Stacy gives is the spirit in the kingdom of evil. And I won't spend a lot of time on this. But Paul uses the same word, recognizing that there, are, there is a kingdom of evil with evil entities that have their own essence, their own spirits that are also alive. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the essence, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Later on in Ephesians, he'll say much the same thing when, in Ephesians 6, 12, when he's talking about spiritual warfare. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Pneuma, that's a pneuma, though it's in a, 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 a modifying form, pneumaticos, I believe is what it is. So you know, Paul makes the point again that there is a spiritual world and, 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 and a world in the kingdom of evil with beings who have an essence that is evil. And this essence that is evil is also an essence that can influence people. 
And so Paul will tell folks not to fall prey to that. And Paul will speak about in Romans 8.15, we already saw him talk about uh, not falling back into a spirit of slavery. Or you can go to 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, where Paul talks about a God didn't give us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. There are spiritual forces. There are, are forces that, uh, 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 that offer you an essence and an opportunity in this life that are not holy, that are evil, and that are wrong. So where does this take us? It takes us into six different categories to look at it. It gives us a way to flesh it out some. But I can't do this without telling you, even these six categories don't work fully. See, I'm not satisfied that these six categories cover, for example, the usage Paul has in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. When he's talking about the, the Antichrist. The lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. That word breath is, Paul's using the same word, pneuma. Well, maybe it means the Holy Spirit's going to kill him. Has Paul ever calls the Holy Spirit the breath of Jesus' mouth? See, the, the, the categories, it's the, what Paul is saying there is Jesus in his power, Jesus in his essence, Jesus in who he is, will destroy and bring to nothing with the appearance of his coming. Categories, another problem with the categories is one category kind of bleeds into the other kind of hard to separate well that's a category three usage no that's a category two it's not like hurricanes where you got like a real clear line at 139 miles an hour it just changed categories or whatever it doesn't work that way with paul's stuff and then the final warning i give you is that paul never gave us these categories so the categories are a tool but they're not an absolute now what does this mean well it means to me that all of this is fruitful area for you to study. This is a fruitful area to study. I did, I got a great email from Gail that is wonderful because it challenges me to study and it allows me to challenge her to study. This is a wonderful area for study. Because there are nuances and understandings that are beyond me that you'll find that God will reveal to you that he doesn't reveal to me. There may be some that I find that, that David Stacy didn't find. There are certainly ones he found that I didn't find. It's an area rich for personal study. So I challenge you in that way. And I challenge you to hold on to these different ideas of the way the words used so many different ways when I get to our coming attractions, is man one, two, or three parts. It's popular for us to teach that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, is it 5.23? 1 Thessalonians 5.23? Completely, spirit, soul, and body. Does that mean that that's what we are? Or is that just a, a Hebrew expression of saying it the same way three times, like when Jesus says, love the Lord your God completely? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Does that mean we're heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or is it just an expression? So we're going to look at those terms. 
And, and I'm not going to shove my view down your throat. I'm going to give you the different views as best as I can. And you get to pick which one you want. Because heavens, I could be very wrong. But it's going to be fun to look at because ultimately there are lessons as we study these words. For example, today, you can have questions and areas to study and you can have problems and challenges and see the tools. But there are some things you must walk away with that are not really debatable points. I chose three of them for our points for home. Number one, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Something special happens when you give your life to God. You are not the same. God's Holy Spirit, God's essence, some of who God is, no, not some of, God comes to dwell within you. And you're not the same. When you're in the hospital, you're not the same as someone who's in the hospital that doesn't have Jesus. When you're going to work, you're not the same as someone who goes to work who doesn't have Jesus. When you're facing financial issues, you're not the same as someone who faces financial issues who doesn't have Jesus. You have God within you. You have tools no one else has. You have, you have access no one else has. And I want to tell you something else. When you die, you're not the same as someone who doesn't have Jesus. Because Christ is in you. God is in you. Number two. The fruit of this essence, the fruit of this breath, the fruit of this life, this fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's gentleness. I left out faithfulness, didn't I? It's faithfulness. I was excited to get to gentleness. It's gentleness. That's one of the hardest things for me as a lawyer when I'm practicing law. To show gentleness. I, I, it, it, it's a very difficult line. It's something I have to work on. It's hard to gently say, Sir, you're lying, aren't you? But even our Jesus, gentle, threw the money changers out of the temple. Very gently, though, I have no doubt. No bruises. The fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness, self-control. Here's my question. What is your compass? What's directing your life? How do you decide how you're going to behave? I had to tell two of our daughters, time out recently. You love each other. I'm not sure. Yes, I am. And you have to make a decision how you're going to live. Are you going to live out of the fruit of the Spirit, that essence of, of God's dwelling within you? Are you going back to that old spirit, carnal, natural frustration of the world? And finally, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. You received the spirit of adoption. Now, adoption is sons. We've talked over and over in this class. Paul says that not because he's gender biased, but because sons in adoption got full legal rights and daughters didn't. 
So men and women, you're adopted with full legal rights to God. What's inside us is not half God, part God, little God, part-time God, semi-God. It's God dwelling within us, working within us to bring us where we need to be until the day He glorifies us. And that's what's going on. And we are children of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He dwells within us. We have a full share in that inheritance. And I would urge each of you to be content with nothing less than your inheritance. But nothing more. Be content to be God's child. And let Him live in you. And change you into who He wants you to be. That's where I am in my life. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you please bless us with your essence, your spirit, with who you are. I pray that your spirit will come upon us, will dwell within us, will give us aid, will give us support, will give us wisdom, will give us knowledge, will give us revelation, will give us the gifts that we need to edify and build up our brothers and sisters to take us to be the kind of church that David talked about this morning in his sermon. Lord, that's the body of Christ we want to be. We pray these things through our blessed Redeemer, Jesus. Amen.